we knew that we were writing history, all of us. Uh, I think Joe knew it, I knew it, the fellow who came with us to procure the heart. I mean, it was just a tiny piece of history, of course, but it was history in pediatric heart surgery. Welcome to the Innovatively Speaking Podcast. It's a podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. This is where we dive into the origins of the next big things, the who, the why, the how. We explore ideas that are changing what's possible here at the Medical University of South Carolina and in some cases all across the world. I'm Kevin Smith in the MUSC Podcast Studio with my co-host, the Chief Innovation Officer here at MUSC, Dr. Jesse Goodwin. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning to you. All right, today we're talking about tiny hearts. We've got another episode about technology that helps babies. And I think we can all agree that helping babies is a wonderful thing. Uh, Dr. Conrad Rajab is here today. And tell me a little bit about Dr. Rajab. So I first became acquainted with Conrad and his interest um, during what we call Shark Tank here at MUSC. So every year we host an annual innovation week and one of our marquee events is what we call Shark Tank where um, faculty get to pitch their projects uh, in in pursuit of funding to our most senior leadership at MUSC. And one year Conrad made it to the finals and ended up winning uh, for the the program and his vision that we're gonna talk about today. And I remember thinking at the time that, you know, this was fantastic. And our most senior executive leadership at the institution agreed. And our president, uh, who was one of the the sharks at the time, I remember in our review session outside, um, as we were deliberating on on who was going to be the winner, um, had commented on how transformative this uh, would be if, if we could actually make it work. And um, it's great to fast forward about 18 months and, and to see that we actually took that plan and he's doing it. It's working. Um, and so it's amazing. So I'm really looking forward to digging in and um, hearing how we went from from concept to actual you know clinical trials, which is pretty fascinating and um, I think shows the power of being at an academic institution. Fantastic. All right, well, let's dive right in. Dr. Conrad Rajab, welcome to the MUSC Podcast Studio. Um, Dr. Rajab, let's start with a stat. Congenital heart defects are the most common types of birth defects affecting about 40,000 babies per year in the United States. It's kind of a staggering statistic. Yes, the development of the heart is very complex, the way it folds, um, so a lot of things can go wrong. We're the only hospital in South Carolina treating these kind of complex heart defects, so we see essentially all the surgic, all the heart defects that require surgery for the state and sometimes beyond. Let's talk a little bit about, just for me, um, to help me understand about these heart defects and what, what actually is happening inside the heart that's not working like it should. So um, as the baby develops, the initial heart tube is just a single tube like a fish. And then as the baby develops in the womb, the heart folds and forms more complex uh, structures so that it can supply blood without oxygen to the lungs and blood with oxygen to the brain and the body of the heart. So during that development, um, the heart needs to form four different chambers. It needs to form four valves uh, and all of those need to be connected correctly uh, and they all need to function well. And if there's a problem with any of these processes, the baby's usually fine in the womb because it's supplied by the mother with uh, oxygenated blood. But then when they are born, 
we see problems. And that's when they sometimes need our help. I'm always um, sort of awestruck when I think about the complexity with which, you know, we need to develop in in the womb. Um, And uh, while, you know, the, the number of babies born with congenital heart defects is pretty staggering when you think about it. It is actually really amazing to me the number of times that we actually get it right, right? Yes. So, uh, because it is such a complex process, and, and when one small thing can go wrong, the um, effects of that can be so, uh, you know, deleterious for, for you know, the, the baby once they're born. And so I, I actually think it's pretty amazing the, the number of babies that are, you know, that were born normally, right, on, a, on an annual basis. It's pretty astounding to me. I agree. Almost a miracle. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, let's talk about then your introduction into trying to find a solution to some of these congenital defects. What, how did you get into this type of research? So um, I initially, well, growing heart valves is, has been an issue for decades in the field. Um, we have very good heart valve replacements for adults. Uh, they work really well. And um, uh, the issue with replacing heart valves in babies is that the heart valves we currently have do not grow. Whereas we have excellent heart valves for adults, if you were to replace one of those valves into a very small baby, the baby would grow, the heart valve replacement would not grow, and you'd need to operate on these babies over and over. So we're talking about mechanical heart valves? Well, so we have different types of heart valves for adults. Uh, There are the mechanical heart valves, there are biological heart valves which are made from cow uh, or from pig tissue, and then there are homographed heart valves which are made from donor valves from other humans. Um, Of those, in a very small baby, the only ones that work are homografts. You cannot make the mechanical valve small enough um, so that at a small circumference, there's still enough blood flow going through them. Similarly, we don't have any small enough biological heart valves uh, for very small babies. Again, because the hemodynamics, once you miniaturize these valves, uh, become unfavorable, and the market is relatively small. So, industry, um, you know, has limited interest in developing this technology for very small babies. Um, so the only thing you're left with is a homograft, which is a valve from another baby um, that's stored, but those don't grow. So people have been working on solutions for this problem for decades and until now the major uh, approach to this was stem cells. What you have to do for tissue engineering is you have to take stem cells and convince them to work together to form a tissue um, and listen to what their neighbors are doing and then work together and grow. It's more or less the opposite of what cancer is doing. In a cancer you have a regular tissue and one cell decides to go rogue become immortalized, it does not listen to what his friends do. Um, and tissue engineering essentially is the opposite. You have stem cells and you need to tell them to become regular cells again. And that seems to be much harder than we originally thought. So we've been working on that approach and we found it's it's really hard and it really, lots of groups have worked on this and no one was able to clinically translate this. So then during my fellowship, I thought about what else could be done 
to bring growing heart valves to children so that we can treat them. And that's how I got into this topic. I actually did a lot of work on heart valves um, for when I was an undergrad and then during graduate school. Um, and, and I think the progression of technology and even approaches for adults has been pretty astounding if you look over the last you know 20 years. Maybe um, on the mechanical side, you know, I remember it started off with like the ball, you know, that, that came up. Um, and then you had like the two flaps that were pretty noisy so people would hear their heart valves uh, click every time at their heartbeat. Um, and they only lasted, if I recall, only about 10 years. So when you think about even 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been sustainable for an infant anyways because the life time expectancy of the actual mechanical valves just wasn't long enough to get them through. I mean, they were really intended for, for elderly individuals who may only have 10 years left. And so um, they've made extraordinary you know, advances just in terms of the mechanical valves, even for adults. Um, and then on the tissue engineering side, I remember, you know, the original xenografts from, from pigs and, and cows, when you treated them, they became pretty stiff, if I recall. Um, and that caused problems with, with blood, blood flow. Um, and then, you know, there was the work done on the stem cells. And, and I remember um, thinking about how hard it was, right, to, to seed these things and, and the cells. Uh, you mentioned the tumor cells that you take one cell and it'll just grow, right? You can't get it to stop. Um, but understanding that these stem cells, like it was how did you get them to communicate with each other and how did you get them to line up correctly? Um, and that required flow. And, you know, people were doing all sorts of crazy things to try to get these cells to behave like they were supposed to. And, and you know, 20 years goes by and we still, it's so incredibly hard that we still haven't been able to really figure it out. Um, you know, it just tells you how complex the process actually is, you know, you kind of look at how much we've learned in 20 years just across the, the, the board in terms of science, and this is an area where we still don't have a good solution. So I think that your approach is pretty incredible because there is still this unmet need that we haven't been able to address just from a pure research standpoint. And and so the the growth is what we're looking for here. We're looking for uh, a heart valve that will grow with the baby. Um, I was doing a little bit of, of of prep, and and you alluded to this already a little bit. The goal, uh, one of the goals, is to to minimize the amount of surgeries that babies have. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because it, you're saying that the valves, the current valves, don't grow. Correct. So, so they work for a bit of time, and then then what happens? So if you have a newborn baby who needs a heart valve replacement at the moment, um, the only option we have to truly replace that valve is a homograft, which is a valve from another baby. You can implant it, it'll be the right size, but then as that baby grows, it'll outgrow that, that valve. So then you'll need a bigger homograft, and then once that's outgrown, um, you get into the size where you can use either mechanical valves or tissue valves. But those would initially also be too small, and then you have to replace them again once the child has reached an adult size. So um, growth is one issue. The second issue is, like you alluded to, um, is that the valves degenerate and don't function very well. So in a homograft, um, there are no live cells in the valve. So over time, as the valve opens and closes, every you know every second we 
we uh, live and sleep and do, <laughs> do everything. So that valve degenerates over time, and because there are no cells inside of it, they cannot repair the structure of the valve. So the ideal valve for a baby would grow, it would be durable, it would not require uh, blood thinners, and it would be readily available and cheap. And you're getting close to we're, that at we, this point? We're getting half, we're about halfway there. <laughs> because, so we have, so our approach is based on transplantation. So um, what we realized is that when you transplant a heart in a newborn baby, that heart grows with a child. And the heart valves, the transplanted heart valves in that heart do not degenerate because they're live cells, they're just like normal heart valves. Um, the cells inside the valves repair the structure of the heart. So um, if a baby gets a heart transplant, it would be very unusual for you to have to do anything to the outflow valves during the entire lifetime of the heart. So the heart, if you transplant the whole heart, that doesn't last forever either. But I realized that the valves inside that heart transplant do not cause issues. So the key seems to be that the cells need to be alive uh, in the valve. So we realized that rather than transplanting a whole heart, we can just take the valve from a donor heart, remove it from the donor heart, and implant it in the recipient heart as if you were doing a Ross procedure, where you just transplant the part of the heart that contains the valve. And we call that approach partial heart transplantation. Um, and then as long as you keep that valve immunologically quiescent so that there's no strong immune attack on the cells, those cells will stay alive. They will allow the valve to grow, just like a heart transplant or a Ross valve. They will maintain the structure of the valve. It'll be durable. And based on our experience with the valves in whole heart transplants, we expect that those partial heart transplants will essentially last a lifetime. Again, I think the human body is so fascinating. Amazing. <laughs> um, so we, we talked a little bit about the pain point um, that, that you were trying to address and what your vision was for how you may approach it. Um, but you've actually made some really incredible strides towards that. And, and I know that you did your first partial heart transplant uh, earlier this year. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, what that was, what that looked like, and and I know you collaborated with another institution, so maybe we can probe a little bit about what that collaboration looked like. Yeah, so the partial heart transplantation is similar to what we already do in the clinic, in the sense that that surgical aspects are similar to a Ross operation, and the transplant immunobiology is similar to regular heart transplants. So it was pretty clear to me that. This is an idea that's not just um, a pie in the sky. It's something that can actually be taken to the clinic and taken to patients relatively quickly. So the first thing we had, to, so people were not that enthusiastic initially, it was just something new. So the first thing we had to do is prove that it actually worked. So we did that using uh, piglet heart transplants or partial heart transplants here at MUC. And Chris Helke, um, our chair of comparative medicine, the chief of veterinary medicine was instrumental in helping getting that to work because doing open heart surgery in piglets is not 
as straightforward as you might think. So her group and I, we were able to um, develop a model in small piglets and we proved that those heart valves grow. And once we had that proof, um, it was pretty easy to convince people that this is something that um, may have value in humans. And the first person who really who really started collaborating with me was Joe Turek at Duke University. And then he one day called me and said that he was made aware of a baby in the womb during prenatal screening that was born with just a single heart valve, a truncus arteriosus, and that that heart valve was not working, it was very leaky, it was not working at all. So we knew that this baby would need an operation, you know, as soon or relatively soon after birth, and we knew that that heart valve would need to be replaced. So because there's only one heart valve, you can't even do the Ross operation where you move one valve over. So really what this baby was looking at was a replacement of that single heart valve with homografts to make two heart valves out of it. And we looked at the literature and over time the cumulative mortality or death rate is over 50%. Uh, that's in addition to having to undergo surgery over and over. Um, so we proposed to the parents, or I should say Joe Turek is his patient and he led the operation. He proposed to the parents that we could try the partial heart transplant for this child. And they were on board. So then the next hurdle we had was to try to find a donor heart. There are no structures at the moment to supply donor hearts for partial heart transplantation. So we had to speak to different OPOs. So we spoke to the Carolina OPOs, we spoke to other OPOs in the region, uh, and asked them to make us aware of any donor hearts that might be suitable for a partial heart transplant. We were essentially, the, the baby at Duke was born, and we were waiting for a heart, and the baby was de developing heart failure. So I found one donor in our NICU and spoke to them, but um, that was a patient with chromosomal abnormalities and genetic defects, so it was not an ideal donor, but we were close to considering approaching the family about that donor heart because we were getting quite desperate. But then, luckily, Joe found another donor, so we declared that we're interested in it and so then the next logis logistical issue was how to get that heart because for a regular heart transplant, you send a team with a private plane and you try to do the transplant very quickly within six hours so that the heart doesn't lose its function outside the body. So we didn't, you know, for us it was a little more difficult because we didn't have those structures. In the end, Joe got Duke to pay for a private plane and um, I took a commercial plane to the city where the donor was, and then I took an Uber to the donor hospital. Um, then I procured the donor heart, and I brought it back to Duke on the private plane. And then by that time, Joe already had the baby, the plant recipient, in the operating room. Um, he started the operation, then he dissected the uh, valve that I brought back and implanted it. Uh, or actually both valves, the aortic and the pulmonary valve, implanted in place of the deficient single truncus valve. And then after the operation was done, the baby did extremely well. 
uh, he was able to leave the hospital after about a month. Um, he's growing. The valve is functioning well. And it was a great success. I think that's really fantastic. And I think it shows the amount of perseverance that it takes from the clinical team to actually make these things happen, right? So you and your, your collaborator really had to... Um, dig in and, and really work to, to figure out how to make it happen. These things just don't sort of... Oh, at every you know. at every level. I can <laughs> tell you that when I first presented this idea, I was told that this is... Uh, I said, oh, this is a new type of transplant. It can, it can change what we're doing. It can change what's possible. I was told this is grandstanding. This is the word that was used. And I first didn't know what that means. But that's actually a... <laughs> grandstanding is not a good it thing. It's not. <laughs> it's no. not a compliment. <laughs> no. Uh, so that's before we even did any experiments. Then when we tried to do the experiments, we were told pigs don't tolerate sternotomy or they don't tolerate opening the chest because they walk on all four limbs, not like a human, so you, it's, this is never going to work, it's going to fall apart. Of course it worked. And then we had issues with um, drains. In humans, we always leave drains after open-heart surgery. We were told oh, it's not possible, you cannot leave a drain, the pig will pull the drain out, it's not going to, of course it's it's working, you just put it under a little jacket. And that's where um, we had a lot of issues with getting the pig operation approved, and that's where Chris Helke really helped a lot. Um, and um, in the end, of course it worked. And those pigs are actually doing very well. They, uh, yeah, many of them are happier than most pets. Um, uh, and then on the clinical side, same thing. We were told, oh, you cannot, this is not going to work. You cannot do this. This is, it's not a transplant and you will not get IRB. And then, of course, we got the IRB. And so, like you say, at every step of the way, people told us, oh, this is never going to work. But, but there was a group of believers who thought, who really understood that this is not that different from what we're already doing and that it was going to work. And we were lucky that in the end it did. Well, you're talking about innovation, obviously, and I'm just curious as to what fuels that innovation for you. What's behind it for you? What, what keeps you going back and trying and working so hard? I think that most of us, you know, we, have, we round in the intensive care unit every day on our patients, and then we see that there are real problems, that there are babies who are really struggling and the families um, uh, who have to deal with this and that there's a, a huge unmet need and so if you have to round in the ICU every day and you see that there are issues you want to work on this on the bigger picture um, to make it better for your own patients but also for you know patients all over the world um, it's something that uh, goes beyond just your local area of influence and um, and that's very satisfying and just working on something new is is it's exciting and satisfying and actually it draws you in and it takes a lot it'll take up a lot of your weekends and evenings uh, it'll draw a lot of your attention and it's important that you have support from your seniors from your institution because otherwise you cannot do this it's it's like a uh, you know how can it's like someone is running in a race and the other guy is running with a race and has to carry, uh, you know, a stone with them. 
So unless you have support from your institution, from your leadership, uh, it's not possible. And so we're very lucky that we have Dr. Baliga and the Department of Surgery in the Division of Pediatric Cardiothoracic Surgery. We have Minu Kavrana, we have um, Scott Bradley, we have um, Eric Graham, Chief of Pediatric Cardiology, and they're all supportive of innovation. And, and I think that's what, uh, you know, made it possible. Yeah, I like that. I think it illustrates that, you know, first of all, it takes passion, right? You have to be committed to, to making a change and having a vision for what can be and not being willing to accept status quo. Um, but I think it also illustrates that it is a team sport and that, you know, innovation, while fun and rewarding, um, also takes a little blood, sweat, tears, and toil, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart that, that big things get uh, accomplished, right? You have to really be willing to, to move mountains in order to make it happen. Um, but I'm glad that I'm here at a place with people like you who are committed to, to making big changes. Well, back to um, your personal involvement, can you maybe discuss a little bit about how it felt for you when you saw this, this research you've been so passionate about actually working? We knew that we were writing history, all of us. Uh, I think Joe knew it, I knew it. The fellow who came with us to procure the heart, I mean, it was it's just a tiny piece of history, of course, but it was history in pediatric heart surgery. That's how we felt. I'm not sure. Maybe it's just like a one-day fly that'll die. And but um, yeah, but we were all quite excited about it. So, so now we've discussed, you know, the current patients that have been done. Um, so, what are, what's the plan going forward? So, the plan going forward is to try to build a structure so that. Like you, like you said, that you don't have to move mountains every try, every time you try to do a partial heart transplant. And one of the biggest issue is trying to find suitable donor hearts. So at the moment, there's no good structure. We have to call the organ procurement organ organizations uh, individually, and we have to notify them. Joe Turek and I want to build a list in a marketplace where donors and recipients can be listed and matched. And then the next big problem, remember you asked me earlier how far we are to the ideal valve, and I said we're only halfway there. So the durability I think we solved, the growth we solved. One issue is the availability of the number of hearts, and the other issue is that you have to wait for a donor at the moment. So there is a small biotech company in Charleston led by Calvin Brockbank who works on cryopreservation. So him and I have now teamed up and we're trying to preserve heart valves using cryoprotectants and a process that is called vitrification. And we're hoping that um, we'll be able to get this to work, that we can freeze valves, keep them in a bank, and then whenever a child needs them, just take them from the bank rather than waiting uh, and trying to fly out and procure a donor heart. I'm guessing someone's listening right now that need some hope in this department maybe or at least they know somebody there's somebody out there who could use what you're working on so hard how would they get more information at the moment there is really not much with just building those structures and we're building those uh, those systems and those uh, service lines so at the moment the best thing is probably to email me and then i'll be happy to get in touch with them and answer any questions that they have about our work or uh, connect them 
if they are um, a patient or a potential donor. Rajabti at musc.edu. Well, Dr. Conrad Rajab, thank you so much for being a part of the MUSC podcast, and we wish you all the best in your future work. Thank you. It was a great pleasure to be here. You've been listening to the Innovatively Speaking podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu slash innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate.